Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's the July 18th podcast today. Thank you for joining me and having to suffer through some more complaining and misery, which uh, you know, oftentimes is part of my life. But hey, you signed up for it. You're here. So strap in and listen to it. Uh, two deaths this week occurred that reflect various stages of my life, one perhaps less important than the other, but two deaths nevertheless. One of them is Ivana Trump, whose death didn't really shake me all that much, as I said. It's been years since I've thought of her or saw her, and she was never a big part of my life. And the other death is uh, Jerry Shargell, who passed away Saturday morning and was probably not probably, was surely my surrogate father in the law business and probably the closest I ever had as a real caring father in my life. And that death shook me. And even though he's been sick for a long time and in a lot of ways I've mourned for him already well before he died. We lost perhaps the greatest lawyer I've ever known, not just the great trial lawyer, but the, certainly the finest appellate lawyer I've ever seen. To have both of these talents is just simply impossible. It's not possible. It's like being the best pitcher in baseball and also the best hitter. There haven't been many in the history of baseball for a reason, I suppose. Uh, Babe Ruth was one, but he didn't spend too long doing both. He concentrated on being uh, a batter with the Yankees. And the other one is Shohei Otani, the Angels star from Japan who pitches and also bats for the Angels and is spectacular in both. But Jerry was perhaps the only one in the field of criminal law who excelled at the highest level of both. Very opposite areas where the skills needed to succeed were so different. And Jerry Shargell and Ivana Trump, there was one common person who worked for both of them, and that was me. About Ivana, she had been out of the public eye for years for the most part as her ex-Donald descended to the presidency. In a lot of ways, she was forgotten at the time she died, and her daughter Ivanka took on the position as the most famous Trump woman in the world. But people forget how big she was in the 80s and 90s, because it's been so long. She was as big as Donald Trump at the time they divorced. They were the couple in New York City. In every Cindy Adams gossip column in the Post, on TV commercials, the biggest of the biggest socialites. She ran the Plaza Hotel, which Donald bought in the late 80s and was deemed in her own right to be a very savvy businesswoman. The Plaza was a dump when the Trumps bought it, and they really turned it around, and she managed it. She designed Trump Tower. She was genuinely respected for her business acumen. She developed a line of clothing and jewelry and beauty products, which she sold through the Home Shopping Network, QVC, that too. She was very big, very brassy, very loud, very ostentatious. But in New York, she was respected somehow, somehow. And seeing how Donald Trump is perceived today, it, it sounds somewhat surprising as it comes out of my mouth. He wasn't very nearly as much of a clown then as he's perceived to be now. That's really the truth. All of that came to a crash, uh, the Ivana's life when she discovered Donald cheating on her with Marla Maples. The divorce proceedings then followed, and it was, man, it was just the biggest story in New York City. All the socialites were divided up supporting Donald or Ivana. It was on the front page every single day in the tabloids, it seemed. 
And, and this was not my world. Let me make that clear. I didn't care about this shit. I grew up in suburban New Jersey, very blue-collar town. I knew nothing of wealthy New Yorkers. I graduated law school and took a job in New York City. I knew nothing of New York City. I had never even read the New York Post except perhaps reading the sports section. It was the fall of 1990, and I went to work for a high-profile criminal lawyer named Michael Kennedy, who had a sort of socialite wife, Eleanor Baratelli from Jersey City, but then she moved to Manhattan with Michael. They became socialites, and she became Eleonora. And they traveled in the same circles with the Trumps. There was a bunch of old bags that would have lunches back then, and, and Eleonora would attend those lunches. And she wasn't an old bag back then, and she was actually a really cool lady. But man, she wanted to be a socialite. She was a social climber like you've never seen. This was the era of the bonfire of the vanities in New York City, a real excessive New York City with glitz and with glamour and ridiculously bad taste. I was only interested in criminal defense work when I went to this firm. Nothing else. I was really pretty hardcore. Yet when I started working there, I quickly learned. Now remember, this was before the internet. Not all information was at your fingertips whenever you wanted it in the fall of 1990 when I started working there. I quickly learned that my boss represented Ivana Trump in her divorce from the Donald. That's what Ivana called him, the Donald. He worked on the case himself. It was stuff that was like very near and dear to his heart and didn't involve any of his two associates, which, which was frankly fine by me. I had you know, almost no interest. To me, it seemed just dumb, frivolous, just jackass stuff. To Michael's wife, it was like the greatest thing that ever happened. She was now a legit A-list celebrity because Ivana had chosen her husband to represent her. And a few months after I started, my boss was on the cover of New York Magazine with Ivana, and it was titled the story, Ivana's Avenger. And it was a story about uh, Kennedy's radical lawyering of the past. I mean, he was a radical leftist lawyer in, in San Francisco, and now he was chic. And he was the lawyer of the moment. As I said, I didn't do any of the work on the case, but I was in the office and it was a three-man law firm and you couldn't help but hear and see the Trump stuff that was going on. Whenever I was there and Ivana was coming to the office to meet Kennedy, she couldn't just come up. She couldn't just, you didn't just see her appear in the office. It was just like this major fucking production. And remember, I was just a kid. I had no knowledge of this world. I, I was practically a hillbilly. Kennedy would visit her at her home in Trump Tower when he had to discuss the case with her. But sometimes, rarely, she came to the office. And she couldn't, again, just come up to the 26th floor at 425 Park Avenue. She had to be fetched, fetched, accompanied up to the office. And no one could be in the elevator with her. Whoever was told to fetch her had to make sure that, you know, she was treated like she was, she was royalty. Once I had to fetch her downstairs, I just assumed that she was this glamorous woman with this cool accent totally together. Because remember back then in 1990, you know, she was a good looking woman still. I mean, my God, I mean, that was a hundred years ago. She was young and glamorous and this accent and she was like a professional skier or something. I don't know. So I just assumed that she was this totally together woman. And I get downstairs and go to the car. She gets out of the back of the limousine. And I walk her into the building and get in an elevator to go up to the office. And we get in, and it is very uncomfortable in there for me. I look over at her, and she's sobbing quietly, kind of whimpering. And it hit me. Damn, you know, 
rich people are still people. And clearly she's crying about the divorce, whatever was going on. She wasn't looking at me. She was just in her own little miserable world. And it was sad. I mean, it struck me that it was sad. And I remember my parents being divorced and how sad it was for me and for everybody involved. And I thought, well, this is like a great equalizer. Whenever you have any kind of trauma or misfortune in your life, everybody's the same. But I'm in this slow moving elevator and it just seemed like I I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. It was so uncomfortable getting to the 26th floor. It felt like it was taking forever. And I look over at her and she's wearing the most spectacular kind of like this puffy jacket. It was like a jacket. It wasn't a coat. It was a jacket. And it was like silver and it had like these paint splashes on it. It doesn't sound so good now, but back then, you know, it's hard to describe, but it was really cool looking. You know, I, I remember thinking, damn. And then I hear the following words come out of my mouth. Mrs. Trump, that's a really beautiful jacket. I don't know why I said this. It's nothing I would ever say. I never talk about fashion, but I was so nervous. I was panicked. There was so much dead air in the elevator. I, I felt I don't, it, it just came out of my mouth. And she just looks over at me. And she just doesn't say a word. She just looks at me with a face like, what is wrong with you? That was bad. Now, another time I had to bring papers over to her penthouse apartment at, at Trump Towers for her to sign. So our office was like a block away. I mean, this was like, you know, she was on fifth Avenue. We were on park in the mid fifties. I walked over, I was allowed up to the top floor because everything of course had to be arranged to be able to get up. And it was cool. There was like a special button for the penthouses and the elevator opened up right into her apartment. I had never seen that before as a young kid that you get to the floor in rich people's apartments and the elevator just, there's no floor. It's just their apartment. And, and I was terrified. I mean, I walk in and it's, it's this gigantic apartment. I was commuting from New Jersey at the time. I didn't have the money to afford a stinky studio apartment in New York City. And this apartment, it just was gigantic. And I walk in and it's just her and her tiny old mother. And for some reason, it surprised me that the mother wasn't beautiful like Ivana. She had dark hair instead of this giant blonde uh, beehive hairdo, and she was about four feet tall. <laughs> and But the apartment, I mean, was just nuts. There were all windows. Uh, the walls were all windows, and it, it saw out over all of Central Park. I mean, that's what the apartment was overlooking, and all you saw was Central Park. It was just, it was incredible. I had never seen anything like this. And everything seemed to be made of gold, like crazy gold everything everything like every fixture is gold i don't even know if it was real gold but it sure looked like it was and then i look up and the ceiling and it wasn't like just the regular ceiling there was all this this trim it was uh, what do they call that the uh, it wasn't just a square it like had these trims that were there along with fancy fancy and all these little fat naked angels in the clouds were you were like looking up into the sky and and these little fat angels the ceiling as i said was the color of the sky sky blue with the little fat naked angels in the clouds what are they they're called cherubs cherubs and they had wings on they had wings these naked little baby angels had wings and she asked me to sit on the couch and i just sat there like a lump 
trying to pretend I was actually a lawyer and I barely was nevertheless. And I'm just sitting like, I don't know, 15 feet from her very unhappy mother who was just staring into space on the other side of the couch. Ivana asked me some questions of which I had no idea what she was talking about. I knew nothing about the case. I mean, this was not anything I was working on. I was just there as an errand boy. And I'm like trying to give her like commonsensical answers. I had no idea what the hell I was talking about. And I had to bring the papers, uh, the signed papers back and, uh, and, and go to the office. Now, as I said, Trump Tower was just a couple blocks from our office. And when I left, I just wanted to go back and, and you know, walk back and get onto the work that I was dealing with. I mean, I was so busy and every second counted. It was, you know, there was no laziness in me back then. I just wanted to get back and work. But Ivana, she insisted that I take her personal driver back. And I'm just like, no, no, totally unnecessary. Totally. No, you, you must take Stephen. Stephen will take you back to your office. And that was his name. I was like, Ugh, I don't want to insult this woman. So, okay. So I go downstairs and Stephen was in front of the uh, Trump Tower at the limo. And I'm like, Stephen, he's like, I know. So he drove me back the one block to the office and it took like, I don't know, 20 minutes because of all the traffic and the lights and everything. Now, as I said, the big thing that sparked the divorce was Trump's affair with Marla Maples. It was on the front page of the New York Post. Uh, there was this quote from Marla, the best sex I ever had. Now, if you're listening to this and you're a person of a certain age, you remember this. You, you may not have remembered it until I mentioned it, but you remember it. It was huge. The best sex I ever had. And it was referring to Trump, which Seems sort of funny today, but Ivana had apparently found out about the affair when Marla confronted her in Aspen on a skiing trip. But for whatever reason, for whatever reason, locked in my old boss's closet in his office was a see-through plastic bag. Inside it, a pair of the most gigantic white Hanes underwear. And I remember looking, I didn't touch them, but I manipulated the bag and could see that they were size 38. Now, I had like a 28-inch waist at the time, you know, maybe 29. I mean, Trump wasn't even 50 yet, and, and he was huge. I remember thinking, man, he hides it pretty well. He wears these suits. He, you know, he, he's not how he looks now. It was, this was, you know, 30 years, over 30 years ago. He wasn't even 50, but he was huge. And I, these were those tighty-whitey underpants. They were underpants. That's what they were. They weren't even underwear. They were underpants. Size 38. And why were they, why was this underwear in a plastic bag in my boss's closet? Now I had another associate that I worked with who was a year older than me, Greg. And Greg uh, was mischievous, very much like me in that sense, uh, nothing else. Um, I don't think he's even a lawyer anymore. But anyway, why were these underwear, why were these underpants in the plastic bag in our office? Because they supposedly had Marla Maple's lipstick on them lipstick and we manipulated the bag and god damn it if there wasn't red lipstick on the underwear now how her lipstick ended up on the underwear i have no idea and the thought of it frankly still makes me a little queasy but i saw them and i guess they were proof that marla and donald were having an affair i don't know i didn't ask the questions you just couldn't ask those kind of questions now my other important role in the trump divorce was regarding their prenuptial agreement there was an ironclad prenup in place wherein she'd get something like, I don't know, it was 10 or $14 million in cash, a 45-room Greenwich, Connecticut mansion, an apartment 
in the Trump Plaza and use of their Mar-a-Lago mansion in uh, Palm Beach, Florida for one month a year, child support of like $600,000 a year. Now, Ivana's lawyers, uh, that was us, I suppose, although it certainly wasn't me, claimed that the prenup was invalid and they wanted half of Trump's assets. Except back then, people forget he was not doing well. And there was a belief that he had been undervaluing his assets, that he really had a lot more. But then it kind of came out that he was declaring bankruptcy with regard to uh, his business properties, and he couldn't get money from banks. They didn't want to loan him money. And he was thought to be near personal bankruptcy back then. And there was a belief, a belief on Ivana's side that the assets contained in the prenup that were promised to her might be a good deal after all. So after fighting about the prenup being invalid, suddenly Kennedy and Ivana decided they wanted the property that was promised in the prenup. And someone had to bring a letter over to Trump Tower, to Trump's office, to deliver that letter saying that they were dropping the challenge to the prenup and that Ivana wanted the money. Naturally, that was me. And it was in an envelope, and I walked it over to Trump's office, and I just remember thinking, like, why is this happening to me? Why me? And I sat in the waiting room and, you know, said where I was coming from. And obviously that rang all the bells and whistles. And eventually Trump's bodyguard and his longtime executive assistant, this wildly competent woman named Norma. I mean, she was just, I remember, this is something I remember about Norma. Norma, I think her name was Norma Federer or something. And she came out and she just was like a, like a pit bull, like a bulldog. That's was what her reputation was. And it's, Funny when you consider how badly all of Trump's hires are today. Norma was rock solid, man. And I said, you know, I'm coming from Michael Kennedy's office and I'm here for Ivana Trump and I'm, I'm here's a letter. And then I just like hightailed it out of there. This was a, a cataclysmic news event in New York in 1991. Now, uh, Trump was a funny guy. He was perceived differently in 1991 than he is today. Yes, he was mocked uh, mostly by Spy Magazine. I don't know if anybody remembers Spy Magazine. It was sort of a hilarious, mad magazine for adults in the 80s and 90s. They referred to him as a short-fingered vulgarian, which is funny. And they used to send him these checks for like 10 cents or 3 cents just to see if he'd endorse them. And of course, sure enough, he endorsed them and cashed them. And they did it just to embarrass him. They would send out these tiny checks to rich people in New York and see who would bother cashing them now either because of his age or i don't know his idiocy of today or just because the liberal press has gone after him so much harder since he ran for president but back then he was more impressive i remember thinking and i have other uh, trump stories which eventually will make it into a podcast at some point assuming i'm still doing this but i think it's probably best for my uh my health that i i keep those uh, quiet for now anyway I recall sitting in Jay Goldberg's office once. I was a young lawyer still. Jay was a legendary criminal defense lawyer, but with an ego then and, and surely is today, just like hilariously ridiculous, like comically cartoonish ridiculous. He was a very funny guy, but so pompous, so crazy, so greedy, and so overly concerned about how he was perceived. And I liked Jay then, I, and I still like him now, but I recognized his fairly gargantuan faults. And I remember his office. He had like these, like, it was like Roman ruins. There were like pillars, like these giant fake stone pillars that were inside his office. And it just was so dumb looking. 
But naturally, Jay thought it was fantastic, and he was nuts. I mean, he was legitimately crazy, and he was Donald's lawyer at the time. And I had left uh, Kennedy at this point, and but I was in Jay's office for a criminal case, and he used to fine his associates if they were late. I, this actually happened. I was there. He'd like hold back money from their piddly paychecks. I remember once uh, Jay's associate, I cannot remember his name. It was, it was so dumb. One time he and, and his associate and I were working late on motions that were due on a case. Josh, that was his name. And we finished, <laughs> we finished after midnight. And the next morning, we needed to go to Jay's apartment and head to court with him. And Josh, uh, his associate, was like five minutes late. I mean, he was up late. We were up to like two in the morning, and now it's like 7.30. And Jay docked him $1,000 from his paycheck. Josh, you need to be more like Jeffrey Boy here. And it was just so hilarious, but so lame. Jay had a, a monumental ego, but to his credit, as I said, he was really funny, but just not always on purpose. And as I said, he was Trump's lawyer for years. Once Jay represented uh, Vicarina Jr. in a mafia case, a federal mafia case, his brother, John, was also charged. And Jerry Shargell and I represented John. I mean, Jerry represented him, and I helped out Jerry. They were the sons of the imprisoned Colombo crime family boss, Vicarina Sr. And this was like 1993 or so. As I said, I had left Michael Kennedy by then, and Jerry and I were driving back from some meeting in New Jersey. I think it was Lakewood, New Jersey, and we had a conference call with Vic Jr. from prison and Jay, his lawyer. But, you know, as I said, we represented the brother, so we were sort of all representing uh, both of the boys. And uh, we had this conference call. Vic was calling from prison, and we got Jay on the line. And this was really early with car phones, with, with mobile phones. So it was like a big deal to set this thing up. At the end of the conversation, Jay thinks it's appropriate to tell us all that he's going to be featured on the, the remember that old show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, with uh, Robin Leach, with, you know, caviar or whatever the, I don't remember what it was, but caviar tastes, and it was just such a dumb 1990s thing. And Jay tells us that they filmed the show, or they were going to film it from his house in the Hamptons, and he was so proud. And I could hear, I could feel it. Through the line, Vic simmering. Now, Vic Jr., and I spoke to him yesterday. I consider him, you know, a personal friend all these years later. Of course, it helps uh, to get an acquittal. We represented him later in a mafia case that could have put his lights out, and we ended up winning. So that's probably why we're still friends with him. But anyway, yeah, I could, I could f f feel the simmering on the other end of the line. I mean, Vic is listening to all of this while he's rotting in jail. And again, Vic is one of the best people I've ever had the pleasure to represent. I mean, just, just a prince of a guy that we think alike in so many ways. I mean, like I said, he's like a brother. Finally, Vic can't take it anymore. And he says, hey, Jay, congratulations on your TV show, but I'm sitting in fucking jail. And that was Jay, just like so dumb sometimes, so blind, but really funny. I mean, it's still funny when I, when I think back on it that he could be so blind. Anyway, so I'm sitting in Jay's office one time on his couch, and he's got this giant desk, and the fake pillars are next to him, and the phone rings, and it's Trump. And this, this is all I hear. And this, look, this happened. This is a fact. I am reporting facts here. Yes, Donald. No, Donald. Yes, Donald. No, Donald. I understand, Donald. Yes, Donald. It was hilarious. I'm just sitting there. You know, Jay's this big-time lawyer, and he's got his 
he's got like his head down on the desk, like near the desk. And he's holding, he's got his, his hand, one hand on the phone, the other hand up to his temples. And he's got his eyes closed. Yes, Donald. No, Donald. I understand, Donald. Yes, Donald. I remember thinking, please, God, never let me get so greedy that I'll get pushed around by a client like this. No money was worth it to lose your self-respect as a lawyer. That's what I remember thinking back then, that money can really become your God and rule you. It's not worth it. So as I said, I left Kennedy in the whole Ivana fiasco, uh, as I, I think I mentioned this in another podcast. This was January of 1993 when I had left. Kennedy eventually got fired by Ivana. She figured out that he had no idea what he was doing as a divorce lawyer because he wasn't a divorce lawyer. And I began working for Jerry Shargell, who incredibly coincidentally represented Marla Maples when Ivana tried to subpoena her for her divorce case with Donald. I mean, this is like the small world. Jay Goldberg, who was Donald's lawyer, had referred Marla to Jerry, and now I was working for Jerry. Small world again. I wasn't aware when I began working for him that he was under investigation for tax evasion, Jerry. He was captured on tape with John Gotti Sr. talking about taking money under the table. And he had been disqualified from Gotti Sr.'s last case, the one in which he was convicted and got life. So I'm leaving Kennedy's office to, to begin this new job with Shargell. And Kennedy's wife, Eleanor, Eleonora, says to me, you know, Shargell is under investigation, right? And I like pretended that I know. Yeah, sure. Of course I know. Everybody knows that. I made like it wasn't a big deal to me, but I didn't know. And I was mortified, mostly because I was scared he'd be indicted and I'd be out of a job. Now, it was a completely different office experience working for Jerry. Jerry and his wife were the warmest people. Uh, I mean, they became like my parents, just the most decent people. I did so much with them socially. With Kennedy, I was parking cars um, and feeding his dog. I mean, he wanted nothing to do with me. And the Shargells were just, you know, the salt of the earth, the most incredible people. And Jerry was cool as a cucumber, as I said, an incredibly hard worker, very different from Kennedy, who was more interested in going to social events that his wife dragged him to. He didn't want to go, but he was dragged and, uh, you know, he was very loyal or I don't know what the word is. Is there a popular word when you do everything that your wife makes you do? I'm not going to say it. This is a family, uh, family podcast. Jerry never seemed to let the pressure of the job get to him, and it was a lot of pressure. I mean, being investigated by the feds, we never spoke about it. Never. But one day he calls me into his office, like on the intercom. That's what existed in 1993 or 1994. As I said, we had gotten very close very quickly. I think we both saw a lot of each other in ourselves. We were both from New Jersey, and even though I was 21 years younger than him, we just, it was just an instant clicking. And he pushes a letter across the desk to me and I picked it up and I read it. And it was from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, the office that had been criminally investigating him. And every case Jerry had back then during that investigation, whenever he got on, he had to say in court, he had to get a waiver. It's called a Curcio waiver from his client saying, you know, the client is aware that I'm under uh, criminal investigation and they have to acknowledge it before the judges would let them in. So it was humiliating in a lot of ways for Jerry, but nobody didn't hire him because of it. He was that good of a lawyer. So the letter announced that they had completed the investigation and would not be bringing charges against Jerry. And that was a, a, a very rare for them to issue such a letter. They don't do it. Normally they don't say a thing. They just let the investigation die and you figure it out on your own that they stopped, but not this time. 
And I asked him if he had been nervous about it, and I believed him when he said that he hadn't been. But he should have been. And I remember thinking, God, I hope this doesn't happen to me. And it has happened to me since then. I have been investigated by the feds multiple times, and it's just what it is. This is the business you choose. And almost to show his lack of fear about the feds being after him, Jerry had some framed covers of New York tabloids hanging up in his office at home. And they were based on wiretaps of Gotti Sr. from the feds bug that they had placed inside the Ravenite Social Club in which Gotti was captured saying such beautiful things about Jerry and Bruce Cutler. My lawyers are rats. And that was on the cover of the Daily News, I believe. Another one, shot up. And it was S-H-A-D-D-U-P in all capitals with an exclamation point about Jerry and Bruce. And Jerry didn't care. Uh, There was tapes where Gotti uh, had talked about throwing Jerry down an empty elevator shaft. Jerry just didn't care, or at least he didn't. He never betrayed any fear. He had this incredibly thick skin, as all lawyers in this business need to have. You just need to turn the page and move on to the next case and just not get too caught up, no matter how bad it is. And working for Jerry was really an apprenticeship. It wasn't a job. I mean, it really wasn't. And I've said this before, but I would have worked for him for free. That's how incredibly uh, powerful the experience was. He was in the office every day. There was no remote shit like Zoom, Zoom court appearances. Court was court. We spent every day together, it seemed, every second. I would see him multiple times a day just talking about cases, and I would just soak in all the knowledge that he had. We would go to baseball games sometime during the day if he didn't feel like working. Uh, Other times, we'd go to the Tower Record Store near our offices and buy some CDs in the middle of the day. He was just like uh, childish in a way like that, which was awesome. He was just this really cool guy. And his passing to me is just the end of an era. He was that good and didn't have the big ego that lawyers like Jay Goldberg had. And unlike so many older lawyers that are still practicing today, he wasn't afraid of his own shadow. He encouraged me to take on every tough case I ever had. And when I would occasionally get the shit kicked out of me in a case or in the press, he would tell me just to toughen up that this business is the kind that occasionally you have to take some, some hits, some bullets. And he was the only lawyer that was ever like that with me. Everybody else warning me, don't do this. Don't do that. It's bad for your career. You know, big lawyers that are around today still, that are still alive. He died from complications from dementia and Alzheimer's, which is incredibly ironic as it was his brain that was the most powerful part of him. There's never been a more powerful brain in any criminal defense lawyer in New York. That is a fact. That is a fact. And I'll say what the great musician Warren Zevon said after learning that he had a terminal illness that would soon take his life. Enjoy every sandwich. You never know when it will be your last one. And I'll also say what the, my remaining surrogate father says to me, a, a friend of unimaginable talent, tells me every day, tomorrow isn't promised. And you have to think about it. It really isn't. We're all so caught up in our lives and working so hard and chasing something that you don't really appreciate that life is fleeting. It's going by pretty damn fast. When I think back of those days of Jerry in his heyday, Ivana Trump in her heyday, they're both gone now. And that's it. They're never coming back. But you have to tell the people you care about that you love them. And the last time I saw Jerry, I did just that, as I did in every conversation he had as his illness progressed. 
I hope he heard me that last time. Wherever you are, Jerry, if uh, I suspect that wherever you are, uh, I'll be seeing you again someday because we were that much alike. And hopefully we'll be able to have the massive laughs, uh, the laughs where my ribs would hurt. Hopefully we'll be able to have them again because I do miss them. Now, recently in the news, uh, talk about changing stories so quickly. Recently in the news was the story of a Dominican bodega clerk in New York who used a knife to kill a very angry man who was about to attack him. The bodega clerk was charged with murder, and the girlfriend of the man who was killed stabbed the bodega clerk and lied about it to police, and she was not charged. The bodega clerk's name was Jose Alba. He was 60, he is 61 years old, and he worked at this Blue Moon convenience store in Upper Manhattan on the night of July 1, when he got into a deadly altercation with one Austin Simon. Simon's girlfriend had left the store after her EBT card was declined while attempting to buy a salty snack for her daughter. I think it was like two bucks. And she claimed that Alba had grabbed her daughter's hand to retrieve the snack that she wasn't paying for. She later returned to the store with her boyfriend, this Austin uh, Simon. And in a surveillance video, the woman is heard saying, after the chips were taken out of her daughter's hand, my N, I'm not going to use the full word, he's going to come down here right now and fuck you up, shortly before uh, Simon came back to the store with her. He comes back, and the surveillance video shows him carrying a white towel in one hand, and he enters the small vestibule area behind the counter where Alba, the, the clerk, was sitting, and he starts pushing him. And uh, in the complaint, it says, Mr. Simon then put the towel in his pocket and attempted to steer the defendant out of the area behind the counter. But the defendant picked up a kitchen knife that was stashed behind the counter and stabbed Mr. Simon in the neck and chest at least five times. That's straight from the criminal complaint. Naturally, in today's woke New York City, the hardworking immigrant was charged with murder. And the victim is this hulking ex-con with a lengthy criminal record who was on parole at the time for assaulting a police officer. The bodega worker has no criminal record and uh, has been here for 35 years from the Dominican Republic and became a naturalized citizen 18 years ago, which means he did it the right way. Now, I actually understand that I've been in the news about this because it's been frustrating that nobody seems to understand why the clerk was charged. And you've got Eric Adams, you know, anything that people, anything that politicians can do to try to curry favor with the public. He's speaking out in favor of the clerk. He's a cop, or at least he was, I guess, a crossing guard type cop. He was a, uh, one of those transit cops that sits at the subway and looks at his phone the whole time. He knows better. He knows why uh, the clerk was charged. In New York state law, a person can only use deadly force to defend himself if they reasonably, reasonably believed that the person they're defending is defending themselves from is about to use deadly force against them. And the use of deadly force is only justified if it's reasonably reasonably believed to be needed to stop the deadly force that you're experiencing or about to experience. So the woke DA felt that the hulking younger man who pushed the elderly bodega worker around and was clearly about to give him a beating but he hadn't yet used his fists, a knife, a gun, or a bat to attack the clerk yet. So when the clerk reached behind the counter for the only weapon that was in his grasp, which was this knife that he used to open boxes and then stab the guy, 
the DA and the police, because it was the police that arrested him. It wasn't the DA who arrested him. They felt clearly that the bodega clerk, even though the younger man was about to give him a beating and his girlfriend announced so as much when she said she was coming back with her N um, to fuck him up, uh, they believed uh, that there was no reason to use deadly force at the time to defend himself as he himself was not facing deadly force. That's according to the woke DA. Now, I obviously feel differently about this. I understand why he was charged. I get all that. But this is an elderly man. He's clearly about to catch a beating from a a much larger man. Now, whether or not he's on parole or has a lengthy rap sheet, unless the clerk knew about that, which he surely didn't, it's not relevant to the determination whether you can use deadly force to defend yourself. So I would probably use his defense. Look, this guy was about to beat him. The girlfriend said he was going to beat him. He's pushing him around. He's very angry. And an elderly guy, a small elderly guy that's about to catch a beating, what are you supposed to do? Just allow yourself to be beaten half to death. And then if you're even capable at the time, then use the knife. Of course not. It's idiotic. But I can understand legally based on that why the clerk was charged. Now, the girlfriend who started all of this and brought her boyfriend back to give the clerk a beating wasn't charged, even though she stabbed the clerk. And the DA will not charge her because, again, even though she started the cycle of violence, which she did, they claim she was using deadly force to protect her boyfriend who had assaulted the clerk, but was then stabbed to death. And if you look at the video, she doesn't start stabbing the clerk until after her boyfriend is stabbed on the ground. So their belief is she used deadly force to protect a third party from the deadly force that he had been attacked with. Now, the truth is, because she started all of it, you can't, like, walk up to somebody with a gun, put it in their face, and then when they pull out a gun to defend themselves, you shoot them to death, and then you say, well, I had to use deadly force. You started it. So that's one of the reasons when you can't use deadly force, and I would respectfully suggest that When you say that I'm going to come back here with my end to fuck you up, you started the cycle of violence and then you really can't use the knife. But the woke DA uh, refused to charge her and just charged the bodega worker, which is, of course, insane. There's a 0% chance he'll lose the case. This is a case that I publicly said I would represent the bodega worker for free because it's so disgusting. But this is the reason why nobody sane wants to live in New York City anymore. It's just, it's just too disgusting. It's just too, it's too liberal, it's too leftist, and whatever liberalism touches, it destroys. And, you know, I was liberal once when I was younger. I voted uh, Democrat. I voted for Walter Mondale, Michael Dukakis. I think I voted for that Paul Tsungas, that putz. One leftist putz after another. But as you get older, you realize that you don't want to live in horrible places anymore where liberalism destroys it. Anyway, Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'm going to be back right after this break, and we're going to talk uh, some more about things that I hate. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit, and I'm back. And let's talk about politics for a brief period. Democrats are going to get destroyed in November. And the reason why they're polling so lowly, the reason why Biden is is such an unmitigated disaster in the polls, he's got like a 30% approval rating. It's because Democrats 
are primarily concerned with social justice issues, with virtue signaling, instead of actually helping Americans. Inflation, the rising costs of everything. Americans are more concerned with staying alive and feeding their families. You've got supply chain issues. The stock market is destroyed. We're overrun with illegal immigrants just walking across our borders. Violent crime in the big cities is way up all over America because you've got these woke DAs that don't want to charge criminals. We still can't get baby formula here. Biden ran on a platform which included saying that he'd get us off of fossil fuels, that's like gasoline, and that he'd make Saudi Arabia a pariah state. We talked about this last week because they, uh, the Saudis apparently dared to kill a Muslim a Brotherhood terrorist-loving a Saudi national who happened to write uh, Jew-hating columns in the Washington Post. So, of course, the left hates Israel, and of course, naturally, they have to uh, protect anybody who is uh, an enemy of Israel. Anyway, so these were his words, that he would make Saudi Arabia a pariah state. Yet last week, he got on his knees and he went to Saudi Arabia begging their leader to raise the output on oil, because they're the biggest oil producers in the world, because he had shut down American drilling by so much and made it so much harder for drilling to occur here. So now he's got to import oil when we're like a huge oil country as well. And the Saudi leader just laughed in his face and bless his heart. This is after Biden refused to shake his hand. This was like a big deal. This is what the Democrats consider to be a big deal. He'd only fist bump him and he blamed it on COVID, but it was a sign of disrespect. Like he's really going to disrespect this guy who's holding all the cards. And Biden shakes the hand of, uh, of Palestinian terrorist leaders all the time and did last week, but only will fist bump the Saudi leader, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salam. Now, Palestinians are meaningless people globally that give the world nothing but terrorism. But Biden again refused to shake the Saudi leader's hand. And that worked out really well because a couple of days later, the Saudis refused to increase their oil output just after Biden had denied just a couple of weeks earlier that he'd even be visiting him. He claimed because he has to kowtow to his leftist base. And of course, again, they hate Saudi Arabia and love the terrorists. And he had to kowtow to them. So he claimed that he'd only be at the same conference as the Saudi leader but wouldn't actually be meeting with him. If he's there, he's there. Well, two weeks later, he's in a face-to-face meeting at the Saudi leader's palace, and uh, he's begging uh, for oil. When you care only about social justice and trans rights and refuse to actually help Americans support their families, there becomes massive resentment. And that's what's coming in November, and it's why 64% of Democrats do not want Joe Biden to run again for president. That's extraordinary. It's one thing to be hated by Republicans or by independents, but he's hated in his own party. He's failed America, and even his own idiotic party gets it now. So when a far leftist CNN news host, this Fareed Zakira, Zakaria, whatever the fuck his name is, I don't know, wrote a column in the Washington Post entitled, Forget Pronouns, Democrats Need to Become the Party of Building Things. He recognized that you just can't keep virtue signaling that's not policy. You need to create stuff for America if you want to be a leader, if you want to get things back on track. Naturally, the leftist mob, uh, woke mob, came for him and was headed by Pete Buttgug, the uh, transportation secretary, who's so bitchy 
and has accomplished nothing in his job, absolutely nothing. But uh, his husband, Chasen Buttgug, led the charge. And all Zakaria said was that Democrats need to understand that tangible achievements is important rather than a fixation on woke issues, including trans rights, is what's needed to win elections. He warned that the party needs to, quote, make government work for people and that doing so was more important to most Americans than using the right pronouns. Of course he's right. I mean, we're in desperate times right now. But Chase and Buttgug just, just flipped out. And he tweeted, addressing someone by the name pronoun they prefer is free, easy, and kind. Using them builds community and belonging. Democrats can walk and chew gum. We can fix roads and build bridges while also making it a little easier to go about your life. That's called freedom. That's what the Chase and Buttgugs said. And his tweet continued. It is wildly inappropriate to instruct Democrats to toss aside an entire group of Americans in order to win. Democrats are making historic investments and bold moves while proposing life-saving and democracy-strengthening legislation that Republicans continue to vote no on. All this Sicaria said was just, we're not saying take away the rights. Just stop making it the focal point of, of your platform because people have had enough. They're real people that actually work. People just want to work hard in America. That's what made America, America great. They just want to pay their bills, take care of their families. Instead, inflation is at a 41-year high. High inflation is like becoming embedded in the U.S. economy now. Food prices rose 1% month over month and 10.4% compared with a year ago. Energy prices were up 7.5% on a monthly basis and are up 41.6% over the last 12 months. New vehicle prices were up 1.6% compared with May and 7.1% a year over year. And you still can't get stuff you need to the supply chain issues. You can't get anything. And our transportation secretary's, I guess it's his husband. Is it his husband? This guy's like rage tweeting about pronouns. Is this the country that you want to raise your kids in? You hear nothing from Democrats but identity politics and trans rights. Nothing about helping Americans survive the recession that they created. It's not Putin. All this shit existed well before Putin invaded. Uh, the Ukraine. Uh, they don't want you to be rewarded for hard work. All they want is affirmative action, as I said, and rights for people, some of them that don't work for them. They want spots in college to go to minorities and those who can claim the most social justice. They're destroying America. You work your ass off, and in a democratic world, you don't get the job, you don't get the promotion. They give it to a minority. And it's upsetting a lot of people. A transgender woman behind bars at a New Jersey prison, a woman's prison, because it's a transgender woman. She was in a woman's prison in New Jersey. She impregnated two fellow inmates, which forced officials to move her to a different facility. That just came out this weekend. Demi Miners, 27-year-old transgender woman. She was moved from a female correctional facility for women to the Garden State Youth Correctional Facility, a prison for young adults in New Jersey. And this Demi Minor is serving a 30-year sentence for manslaughter, is in a vulnerable unit in the new facility where she is the only woman. I mean, again, I'm using her pronouns that she's a woman, even though she's apparently got a penis that can impregnate other women. 
Now, Miner's move comes months after it was revealed that she had, as I said, impregnated these two inmates while locked up in the female prison and uh, engaged in a consensual sexual relationship with another female. This is what Democrats want. This is what they're concerned about. Pronouns, trans rights, pretending that, you know, this is not next level mental illness is just crazy. In 2021, New Jersey, a leftist state, the people certainly aren't. I, I grew up there and there's certainly a lot of people that can't stand this shit. They enacted a policy to allow prisoners to be housed in accordance with their preferred gender identity. The policy, which was in place for at least a year, was part of a settlement from a civil rights suit brought by a woman who was forced to live in men's prisons for 18 months. I mean, it was biologically a man, but she claimed that she was a woman. So what happens when you put a man with a penis who decides one day that they're a woman and you put them in the female prison? Well, naturally, they knock up all the women. I mean, this is like smart leftist policy. Now, this Demi Miner wrote in a blog post on this website, Justice for Demi, can you imagine what that website's like, on July 15th that she was placed on suicide watch at the new facility and she was pissed about it. Oh, why was she placed there? Due to the fact that I had hung myself in the van. Okay, well, I would think that's probably a fairly decent reason to put somebody on suicide watch when you tried to and failed to commit suicide. She claimed guard denied her request to be strip searched by a female Department of Corrections officer. So she has no problem impregnating other women, but she insists that a, only a woman can strip search her. Do you understand how idiotic this is? She wants the benefit of being a woman sometimes, but she wants the benefit of being a man when she wants to use that gherkin between her legs to knock up other inmates. This is like utter madness. Now, this Demi Miner, who the man pretending to be a woman, said in the blog post that during the prison transfer, she was called he and him well over 30 times, adding, this has not happened to me in years being referred to primarily as a man. Well, when you use your penis to knock up women, you may find that people tend to think you're a man. This, is a, this person, this Demi Miner, I'm having trouble with this story. Uh, this Demi Miner wrote, quote, while living here in my new prison, I have found myself under attack by young inmates who are immature and just plain ignorant towards a person like me. Can you blame them? You claim you're a woman and yet you used your penis to impregnate two women. And this is all done because a leftist state insists upon allowing the inmates to run the asylum. This is what Democrats have made America into. Is this helping us or hurting us, do you think, internationally or as a country? Now, last week I mentioned that Democrats view China as a more important ally to America than Israel. I found this astounding. It just doesn't make any sense. Somehow Democrats missed when our administration threatened China with military attack if China attacks the Philippines or Taiwan. Does that sound like our very important ally? For nearly two decades, China's Communist Party has undermined the United States. They've been stealing critical technologies and, and, and doing all they can to sap our productive capacity. They've infiltrated every segment of American society from government and business to Hollywood and even the Ivy League schools. All the while, the, the, the Communist Party, they built up a massive arsenal of advanced weaponry. China unleashed the coronavirus. 
It crippled our economy and killed over a million Americans. In a recent Gallup poll, 45% of Americans, that's almost one in two, now say that China is the greatest enemy of the United States. Yet, incredibly, Democrats are so dumb, so blinded by their Jew hatred, that they believe that China is a more important ally than Israel? So, half of the country believes that China is our biggest enemy, and yet the Democrats think that China is a bigger ally to America than Israel. Israel, of course, is a counterweight against the radical forces in the Middle East, including political Islam and the the violent, crazed Muslim terrorism. It's also prevented the, the, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction in the region by destroying Iraq's uh, nuclear facility in 1980 and Syria's nuclear program. Israel continues to help the United States with traditional security threats. Uh, The two countries share intelligence on terrorism, on nuclear proliferation, and everything going on in the Middle East. Israel's military experiences have shaped the United States' approach to counterterrorism and our own homeland security. The two governments work together developing sophisticated military technology, which is often exported to America from Israel. Israel's military research and development complex has pioneered so many cutting-edge technologies that are transforming the face of modern war, including cyber weapons, drones, sensors, electronic warfare systems, and advanced defense for military vehicles. Forget all that. Israeli companies that are looking for a global market for the products have often used their American counterparts as, as their partners of choice. Today, Israeli civilian technological innovations are helping the United States maintain its economic competitiveness and address a a whole range of non-military security challenges. Dozens of leading U.S. companies have set up technology incubators in Israel to take advantage of uh, Israel's uh, really openness when it comes to new ideas. Which is why Bill Gates, that lefty, said that the innovation going on in Israel is critical to the future of the technology business. Israeli high-tech firms turn to U.S. companies as, po- as partners for, for joint production of all sorts of things, creating tens of thousands of American jobs. And although uh, Israelis make up just 3% of the population in the Middle East, Israel was the destination for like 25% of all U.S. exports to the region. They've eclipsed Saudi Arabia, much bigger country, as the top market for American products. Anyway, you know all about this. You know the fact that Israel cooperates with the United States on information technology that's crucial to Silicon Valley's success, like Intel. They have a research and development center in Israel, and they've designed some of the company's most successful microprocessors and are responsible for a large part of Intel's revenues. Anyway, again, you know all this. They've also, Israel's got novel solutions to the water and food security challenges by population growth, climate change, and all kinds of economic development over the world. America invests in Israel. Israel invests in America. Yet Democrats believe that China, which poisoned America, is trying to destroy our economy every day. They've planted spies all over America is our more important ally, even though half of America just about recognizes honestly that China is our biggest enemy. Of course they are. 
When your worldview is colored by Jew hate, this is what happens. This is the new Democratic Party and why I left it years ago. And to the kids out there that are listening, the next time your mom tells you that China is our friend, our ally, and Israel is not, just remember, she probably doesn't have a job. She probably spends her mornings breathing, dancing, and drinking coffee. Not exactly major accomplishments, I'm going to tell you. When somebody tells you that they need to breathe, breathe, just cover their noses, okay, with your fingers, just squeeze it. See if they can still breathe. They can still breathe. That's just bullshit. That's just leftist, meaningless, stupid shit. Breathe, dance, and coffee. Those are the words of an idiot. That's leftist America. At some point, Americans are going to rise up against this sort of woke idiocy, I promise you. When we have leaders that support terrorists, when we put trans rights ahead of common sense and American rights, when you run out of money and you can't afford to fill up your car with gas, you're going to let go of some of your moronic political correctness, and you're just going to want to provide for your family and live in a, a meritocracy where the people who work the hardest, who produce the most, get ahead. That's what's coming which is why I don't mind things bottoming out right now. The country's going to learn. Liberalism is a disease. It destroys everything it touches. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Thanks for joining me today. You can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and you can go to beyondthelegallimit.com if you want to send me an email and tell me how much you love me.